Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 17. And the last time we looked at the prophecies against Moab, and you see a lot of these ancient names, some of them have retained their names over millennia or centuries. Some of them, the names have changed. But Moab would be what we understand today as modern-day Jordan. Today, modern-day Jordan, there's this incredible city that was built out of mountains that might have taken centuries. Little by little, the Nabataeans were working on this, and uh, it can actually house probably close to 1,000 people or 100,000 people or more. And the Bible speaks about this city and what it's going to do and receive in our future. Pretty amazing. Um, the Bible predicted it before it was anything. It was just a mountain. <laughs> so, of course, God's Word, he, can, he knows the end from the beginning. Today we're going to look at the prophecies against Syria and Ephraim. Again, we're going back to the 8th century B.C. There were some alliances. People were in fear against this monstrosity empire called the Assyrian Empire that was rising up into, in the Mesopotamian area. So the, basically, after reading it, I always try to find like a title that embodies the message. And the message uh, on these two chapters is, the title today is Don't Get in God's Way. <laughs> some laughs. Um, I've gotten in God's way. Even as a Christian, I've gotten in God's way. And many things kind of bring us to do this foolish endeavor. One could be fear. One could be pride in our abilities. I got this, God. Um, there can be many different reasons why we do something, especially as believers. We should be considering what he thinks and his plan for our life, but we run ahead and do it anyway. Uh, so, and when that happens, usually there's a life lesson to be learned because it doesn't always go well. Now, in this particular scripture the southern kingdom of Judah really was tasked not to get in God's way. And we'll see how that plays out. And we'll look at this in seven parts. So jumping in, chapter 17, verse 1, it says, The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aroer are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down and no one will make them afraid. So sheep, goats, you know, wandering cows can go into this area because this bustling city now is really reduced to, to rubble and uh, the animals can come in and out and graze and not be chased by anybody because the inhabitants are gone. God's word uses some great detail. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. So the first out of seven is the prophecy against Damascus and Ephraim. Now, understand, Damascus was the capital of Syria, still is. Damascus is one of the oldest cities on the planet, and really, for the most part, continuously inhabited. Uh, there's a lot of museums and artifacts in Syria. When ISIS was running their course through the a Syrian and Iraqi area, sadly, they destroyed a lot of history. They destroyed artifacts. Thankfully, we still have pictures and scrolls and things like that. 
So you, you kind of go back to the, you say, how does this affect me? Well, it does affect us because part of how I prove the existence of God is through archaeology and history. So it's very important that we preserve history, scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, things like that. Um, and that was one of the worst things that, aside from what they did to people, what they did to a lot of these artifacts. But So Syria has the capital, Damascus, and Ephraim really was a metaphor for the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes in the north. And uh, Ephraim was the dominant tribe. Now, Samaria was the capital of the entire northern kingdom, which was in Manasseh, which was next to Ephraim. There's not going to be a quiz on this, but I know some of you are interested in, in how the nuts and bolts kind of function. But again, God's word is very intricate. Um, so this is what's going on here. The Assyrians come, they invade, they destroy both capitals. Uh, Damascus is, in, is destroyed in 732 B.C., roughly 10 years later, 722, 721 uh, the Assyrians, not to be confused with the Syrians, completely different people, they destroy uh, the northern kingdom's capital of Samaria in roughly 722-721 BC. If we could put up the map just to show you what things look like today, it's pretty fascinating. And um, you know what? One thing I didn't put up, I have two maps for you. One thing I didn't put up, I was actually going through, my studies take literally days because I get so engulfed, <laughs> enthralled with the history and the artifacts and the archaeology that I'm just, I'm on all these different, you know, rabbit holes. <laughs> but uh, there was ruins of the Samaritan city or the, the capital of Samaria. And the ruins are still there today. Now, just to give you an idea about the area. So this is Israel today, right? This yellow area. This is the West Bank. Now, this would have been the area where... Samaria was, the capital. And this is an interesting area because it's under joint control of the Israelis and the Palestinians. A lot of disputing going on in that area still. But that northern power, like God said, has been pretty much wiped out. But Damascus now, on the other hand, is over here in Syria, what always was, still is. And Samaria is, or excuse me, Damascus is inhabited. Now, was it destroyed by the Assyrians? Yes. However, Bible scholars believe that there will be another strike on Damascus. Because when you read the Hebrew, it does appear that this is going to be in such ruins that it won't be rebuilt again, sort of like the way Babylon was. And we covered Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq, which is in ruins. Again, animals can graze, Bedouins pass through, but... It's, it's not inhabited. It's a, it's a done city for the most part. Now, Syria is very interesting. And if you look at the border here, again, today, Syria, the borders back then were somewhat different, and so were Israel's borders. But the Golan Heights, I believe it was the Six-Day War, Israel won back the Golan Heights after she was attacked by many uh, surrounding nations. This is, uh, there's some mount there's mountains here, and this is like a buffer zone to protect Israel from Syria. And here's actually the Sea of Galilee. Lake Tiberias, the Sea of Chenereth, the Sea of Gennesaret. The names change, but the geography doesn't change. Let's talk about Syria briefly. Syria today is a powder keg. Um, I don't know if you read, and the news cycle is so fast, my pastors and I were trying to, because I, I was doing something and I saw, oh, a Russian jet was shot down by uh, Syrian rebels. 
over Syria, and it crashed and, 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 and the whole thing. And it's funny because I was preparing this message, and then I saw this. Syria is a powder keg. Powder keg. Why? Because Russia has a heavy involvement right now in Syria, and this happened over the last several years. Um, so could there be another strike on Damascus? Yes. Well, how could that happen? Well, there's, there's a lot of dangerous things happening in Syria right now, and Israel's a little concerned, to say the least. Russia could accidentally drop something, or something could happen with the Russians with their uh, very powerful equipment. Another way that uh, Damascus can be struck again is a result of a proxy conflict between the United States and Russia. Remember, when Trump got into office, um, I think it, not even a few months in, he sent airstrikes into Syria, where the Russians were, had a base with the Syrians, and they called the, the deconfliction sign and said, in an hour we're going to do this, get your Russian guys out of there. So it's a very interesting, to say the least, time that we live in, if this is going to happen again. It could be a dirty bomb by terrorists who hate President Assad. It could be an Israeli strike. Not only have we struck Syria recently, but Israel has struck Syria. Israel has no qualms about crossing into someone else's territory if they feel threatened. So you can see that Syria right now, Assad doesn't have control of his country. It, it's, it's a nightmare. Okay, we'll leave that at, at that, and we'll see what the Lord does, right? Something big happens in Damascus. Well, remember this message. <laughs> so uh, a few things here. Let's go back to the 8th century B.C. Israel and Syria were always fighting with each other. Now they've aligned with each other. They've made an alliance because everyone's afraid of the Assyrians that are coming. And they trusted God, or they didn't trust God, but they trusted in their alliances. And God eventually just kind of said, okay, that's the way you want it to be. I'm, I'm just going to let you do what you want. And, it, and that, that's a, really not a good place to be especially as believers, you know, we can do things that kind of show through our actions that we're really not fully trusting God. And, you know, God is, he respects himself. He's not going to beg us for our attention. So back here was a little bit different. The, uh, the Israelites in the northern kingdom got involved with a lot of idolatry, a lot of wickedness, and God pretty much took his hands off the situation and said, you don't want me, no problem, and I'm paraphrasing, and then all these things started to happen in a negative fashion. And I, I've been talking about this in 2 Kings on Wednesday nights. There's a parallel scripture. 2 Kings is hitting it from another direction. Isaiah is hitting it from the direction we're going in on Sunday morning. Um, and I've, I've said uh, regarding even Christians that we have to be careful with the alliances we make. You know, are we showing God through our actions that maybe he's taking too long or we don't like his way and we're we're tending to do things that pretty much push him out of the equation. But we say, but we're Christians, you know. Got to be careful of that because the flesh is very insidious. It creeps up inside of us and it, it wants to draw us away from our relationship with the Lord. Verse 4, continuing on, he says, In that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob, or Israel, will wane, and the fatness of his flesh will grow lean. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it. Like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bow. Four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. 
In that day, a man will look to his maker, he's looking up, and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, remember the false gods that they would build? He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. And these were all bad things with, that came with false worship, false gods. So two out of seven is God uses metaphors to describe what happens when his people turn their back on him. You know, I mean, it's really a perspective check. Some people, and I did this too, I didn't know the Bible. I would read the Old Testament and get scared. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but God is just saying, listen, when, when you have a relationship, there's perks to any relationship. So if you're going to worship little demons and little idols, I just can't be a part of this. And then things started to fall apart. So the, look at these metaphors. Um, Israel's downfall was likened to a sick person wasting away. And metaphors were great especially for the uneducated, so that everybody could understand God's Word. Today in the United States, we're overeducated. This culture was in, in large, you know, there was a lot of people who couldn't get an education, and that was probably the majority. So God would speak in metaphors, and so did Jesus, by the way, when he came, speak in parables so people could understand what he was talking about. He also gives the metaphor of a harvest or a gleaning that produces an unproductive crop. Now, <laughs> yeah, I, I think of someone who turned their back on God, and that would be, in my mind, right away, I think of Samson. You know, Samson, when he continued to turn his back on God, he lost his strength, they put out his eyes, uh, and he lost his freedom. He became a slave for the Philistines. Did God do that to him? No. God protected him from the Philistines, but he pushed away and he turned away from God so much that you know, these, he fell into these t terrible pits that he dug for himself. Um, there was a, about 10 years ago, it's not gossip because it was unfortunately in the news, but there was a guy who grew up in a Christian family, and I'll speak in generalities, and uh, he decided one day to be a prodigal. He knew the Lord, he knew the Bible, he walked away, he got involved with some really bad things, and the next thing that you know, you're reading about him in a murder-suicide. He was killed, and then his lover killed herself and burned the house down. Listen, I want to be under God's protection. <laughs> I look back at my old life when I wasn't, and I think to myself, oh my goodness, I was hanging by a thread. Anything could have happened. So turning your back on God, I mean, it's, just, it's not good practice, but God will allow us in our free will to walk away if we so choose that. Verses 7 and 8, and I love this, and God always sprinkles, listen, today, I don't care what politician, they use the word hope as a you know, a campaign slogan. The only true hope that you can find is really in the Lord because he's the only one who can actually deliver. Politicians can't. But in the midst of trials and suffering, you saw seven and eight. The man will look to his maker. So th through this tragedy, the average person, they would just look up and go, wow, how far have we gone from you, Lord? And he'll look at the idols that he, have, he made and he... And he, he throws them out, he, he doesn't burn the incest anymore, he, he try to, tries to come back to God in repentance, and there's a remnant, right? Even in wicked northern kingdom, there were those that were left that truly worshipped the Lord. They turned back to God. In Revelation 11, we read of an incredible earthquake, and again, this is the earth's future from now. And all these people turn to the Lord. You know, there, there's so many disasters, so many cataclysms that people are just starting to turn back to God. Right? So sometimes, again, we look at this and go, oh my goodness, judgment and tornadoes and this and that. But a lot of times, 
it helps us to understand that our own mortality. We're not going to live forever. Listen, I was young and strong, and I had black hair and a black mustache years ago. Where did those years go? So as we get older, we realize we're not going to live forever. I mean, I'm on the other side now, 50, gee, you know. I can't have 50 more years. So, so this is what you, you know, you hope that people eventually turn to God. Now, if you look at the, the pattern of Israel's existence, Israel, I'm, I also struggle with, I, I have my glasses here. Sometimes in the morning, it's, 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 it's you know, sometimes I read and, and then I'll just put the glasses on because my eyesight is just on the borderline, right? Uh, some mornings I have to put these on. Three years ago, I used to brag about my eyesight. You know, a few years ago, my wife and I, we bought our, our first flat screen TV and um, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, this thing's a piece of junk. It's all blurry. And she goes, she goes, what are you talking about? I guys, look at it. It's, this is a, a piece of... And I, I went like this, and I went like this, and I'm like, wow, it's, my eyes are going bad. It just kind of snuck up on me. So, you know, we get to know our own mortality over the years. You know what I'm saying? We're deceived when we're in our 20s and 30s about immortality. Okay, let's go back to Israel. <laughs> You know, Israel went through these, these phases of God bless them. Unfortunately, they took those blessings and it allowed them to become puffed up. It allowed them to become um, decadent in some ways. They took something good and they, it was all about them. And they let their pride and their egos lift them up to a place where they were walking away from God. They were decadent. And then there was, unfortunately, turning their back on God, and there were consequences, there was judgment, and then there was repentance. You know, I look at our country, and that's <laughs> an, another story. I, I was pulling up my old college transcripts from 30 years ago, because my son's going to college now. So I, I'm not going to go into the details about why I did that, but I took a lot of economics and finance and accounting and one of my many majors was economics. I was on the four-and-a-half-year plan, by the way. Eventually, I had to rope everything together and get a degree and get out of there. You know, it was becoming a lifestyle. But the bottom, I, did, I had a lot of good courses. And I see some really good indicators in this country that we're, we're, we're rebounding, that the country is, is starting to take off, that unemployment is dropping and people are making money. And we're, we're kind of going kind of on the upswing, again, based on my experience and my schooling. However, there's a downside to that. The downside is I find as a pastor, and I've talked to other pastors, that I find it's more difficult to reach people when they're doing extremely well. Some of, they're some of the hardest people to reach. And just like the Israelites had their little gods, in America, we have little gods too. Little gods of wealth, of pleasure, of alliances, of youth, of good times. And i got to tell you, and I've seen this, it could be a terrorist attack and churches start to fill up. You know, then, then things get better and people forget and then there's prosperity and they, they start to shrink. And it's this kind of ebb and flow that's almost a direct relationship. So as I, much as I love my country and I want to see people prosper, I also find that those gods can build up in our hearts, even among Christians. And they could live a life like it's just all about them. And unfortunately, it takes a tragedy to get their attention to realize, wow, you know, I'm, I'm going in the wrong direction here. I'm just following what everybody else is doing. So we have to be careful about that. You see, 732 B.C., God's people got to see 
Damascus. Wow, Assyria is whooping them. Oh my goodness, they're in the city. Oh my goodness, they're impaling the nobles. They're expatriating people. God's people had 10 years to look at somebody else's problems and get the idea that maybe we should change. But the majority of the people didn't do it. And folks, it's the same thing with us. You know, we can look at the Bible and say, oh yeah, old civilization, what do I care? Doesn't affect me. It does affect us. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't in a vacuum. This is something that affects the human heart and the human condition. And as believers, this is why we come together. I have no tolerance for namby-pamby pastors who all they do is talk about positive things all the time. Because we need to read this, especially if our country does take off and everybody is doing well. We've had eras in our country like that. I've lived long enough to see it. Let it not deceive us. Let it not deceive our hearts into thinking we don't need God. So 732 B.C. was a warning to the Israelites Remember, we talked about Moab before. Moab had three years to get it together. That's a long time. Folks, let's not miss the signs because they're really important. We have to ask ourselves, what is my life built upon? Jesus said, it's either going to be a sandy foundation or it's going to be built on the rock. And he was referring to himself. Sandy foundation, it might be good in good weather, but when hard times come, that house is going to shift. It's going to break apart. Nobody builds a home on a sandy foundation. And that was what Jesus was talking about. Continuing on in verse 9, it says, In that day his strong cities will be as a forsaken bow and an important branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation, because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. He's our stronghold. Listen, I can sit here in my foolish pridefulness and think of about three things that I'm good at and and get self-deceived and and go that way. But I have to remember that God is my stronghold. God is my rock. You see what I'm saying? He's my foundation. I can't forget that. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In that day, you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning, you will make your seed to flourish. But the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. So three out of seven. The Assyrians were going to come and strip everything that the Israelites were putting their trust in because they weren't putting their trust in God. So what's left, right? Jesus says, don't lay up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. He says, while you're on earth, lay up your treasures treasures in heaven because those are eternal treasures where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Jesus says, where your treasures is, that's where you'll find your heart. You know, a lot of times our lifestyle, we can say a lot of things, oh, I love God, this, that, and the other thing, but our lifestyle can say something, it can tell a different story, and people can see through it, and certainly so can God. So what are we trusting in this morning? Is it impenetrable? Will it carry us into eternity? Right? And that's only a question that we can, we can ask. And preaching, listen, when you're t- preaching the truth, when you're telling the truth of the Scripture, sometimes the truth hurts. You know, today we live in a, a culture where you know, people are triggered and, and you, they want to hear certain things. But, and the truth can be painful. The truth about spiritual things. Some of the violent reactions of, of 
preachers just preaching something from the scripture, violent reactions from some who don't understand the things of God. Viscerally, they become angry, they become agitated, and they don't even know why. But the, the source of it is that Satan wants to keep them where they are, but God wants to pull them over to his side. Are we going to listen to the flesh, or are we going to listen to God's drawing us? Verse 12, continuing on, last few verses of this chapter. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the, rusher, the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. This one's key. Then behold, at eventide, or at evening, trouble. And before the morning, he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. So four out of seven is God will eventually judge the Assyrians. God is not, even as a disciplinarian, he's not harsh. He's like, listen, this is going to last a certain amount of time, but eventually these really mean people who are giving you a hard time, eventually I'm going to deal with them because they're overstepping their boundaries because what they're doing is wicked. But again, the, the, the metaphor of rushing waters or um, uh, you know, a natural thing that, uh, is, that has a high decibel count, right? Have you ever been at a, maybe a military demonstration, um, somebody you know, and, and there's like a thousand soldiers marching in unison, shoo, 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 and it's loud. So the Assyrians were coming, and they're going to march through everybody's land. The, the, the gallops of the horses, the feet of the men, the equipment that they're bringing, the carts. And when, you, know, you could be in a quiet town and, you, and here they come and you're like, oh man, this is not good. And it's loud. So that's basically the, the understanding. It's a, it's a scary thing to everybody. And basically he's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be in fear. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with this. Fear is a funny thing. It's a physiological response of the sympathetic nervous system that basically, I believe, we were designed and created so if danger comes, we could do one or two things. We can stay and fight or we can flee. The fight or flight response. The adrenaline pumps, you know, the way the body is designed, it, you almost can have superhuman strength. It's, it's designed so that you can, you can be saved. You know, you can be rescued uh, through your body's response systems. But a lot of times we allow fear to take over our lives when there is no, necessary, no necessarily physical threat. You know, and even as Christians, we, can get, we panic. We can panic at certain things. And God's like, listen, I got this under control. You don't have to panic. We don't have to lay awake at night every night worrying about this or worrying about that. Jesus says, don't worry. You know, deal with today as it comes and trust me. So there was certainly fear in this season, but it was only going to be for a season. Now, in verse 14, which I wanted you to make note of, is disaster or trouble in the evening, but in the morning, don't worry about it. In the morning, he is no more. Wait a minute, all that noise, all those horses, all those soldiers, what happened? You know, where did where, it go? Well, we can reference 2 Kings 19.35, which I had already taught on, on Wednesday nights. And this is something that I challenge. I have a few some that dabble with history um, to go in your history books and check it out. But in 701 BC, the Assyrians came to invade Jerusalem and they were unsuccessful. Why? Because at nighttime, while they were assembling to attack in the morning, 
um, God wiped out most of the army. And in the morning, the Israelites came out and their food and their equipment was there and the soldiers were all on the ground. So this was a, an actual event that took place. It started to weak, weaken the Assyrians. They moved south a little bit. They moved east. But they didn't have that power anymore in the west because God took care of it for the Israelites. Again, they were wicked. Right? And the, the bodies of the soldiers were littering the, the countryside. Jerusalem actually might have been the only city that the Assyrians didn't besiege where they didn't win, where they didn't get in. But Hezekiah was the king, and he went before the Lord, and he's like, Lord, they're threatening us, and, and we don't have the manpower, we don't have the supplies, and as my paraphrase, and God said, I got it. I got it. Unlike some of your predecessors, at least you came to me. I'll take care of it for you. And he did. You know, and I, I hear the expression sometimes, well, all we can do is pray at this point. No, we should be praying every day. Because prayer is one of the most powerful things that we have as believers in our arsenal. To contact the living God, three in the morning, four in the morning, he's always up. And tell him our needs, tell him our concerns, tell him our anxieties. And say, Lord, I'm going to trust you with this. I want to know your will. Well, long story short, um, even though God's people were not being a good example, he was still going to be a beacon of light to the area. And when we look at the next chapter, we'll see that uh, the fact that the Assyrians could not get into Jerusalem was an amazing thing. How the army was weakened. It, you know, that spread around the world. Wow, look at Israel. Look at Jerusalem. It didn't, it didn't happen. Now, the northern kingdom was invaded, but the southern kingdom was not. And that was a good king where the northern king was not a good king. Uh, verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1, he says, Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia which sends ambassadors by sea, each in vessels of reed on the waters, saying, Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide. So five out of seven is, he was saying to Judah or the southern kingdom, God was saying to them, don't make a, a pact you know, a, a, an alliance with the Ethiopians, and, and he's going to give his reasons. If we could put up the map, the second map. So basically what you had was, this is the continent of Africa. Some people call it a country. It is not a country. There's 54 countries on, in this continent as we speak. And I actually had it widened so you can see the, the names better. Um, I'm going to reference Africa. I'm going to reference the peninsula of Saudi Arabia, very fascinating. So what happened was Ethiopia is actually over here. But when he speaks about Ethiopia, the biblical word was Cush or the Cushites. The Cushites encompassed basically uh, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Somalia. This was a, a power play back in the day. Um, and I'm going to go through some scripture that the Bible speaks about. It's actually very fascinating. Um, some also known, the, the word might be familiar to you, the Nubians. In this area was what was called the, the Nubians. Um, some of the translations use Ethiopia because Ethiopia was kind of the power base. And I'm going to go into this. So Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Somalia. Around 720 B.C., an ethnic Nubian named Shabaka gained control of Egypt's 25th dynasty. Now this is fascinating because... so. 
in this period of time, the Assyrians would rise and fall, the Babylonians would rise and fall. And what happened was some of these little nations would get together and say, you know, we can't do this by ourselves. It was called regionalization, right? They attached themselves to each other to have a better bulwark walk against these advancing um, armies. So what happened was Shabaka and his brother P.A., P.A. came before him, but Shabaka did it completely. They were ethnic Nubians, and they invaded Egypt. After they invaded Egypt, they said, okay, let's be friends. <laughs> and it sounds weird, right? But what it was was they had the foresight to say, what we have to do is we have to get all the strong nations together because we have to fight against these armies from the Northeast. So that's what they did. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, it speaks about you know, the European Union, right? We, we know that there's, there's some benefits to that in European uh, nations. The Bible speaks about a global leader who's going to come on the scene, which we know is the Antichrist, who's going to unite uh, Europe in a certain way and he's going to cause havoc on the world. He's going to persecute the Jews. A lot of things are going to happen. Now, what's interesting today in the news is that the African nations, many of them, have talked about an African Union. So you can almost see in the future in Revelation where Europe, Europe will have... Here's Europe. Europe will have a union. Africa will have a union, right? Globalization, regionalization. Asia is, is getting together some countries over here to have a union, and the the Americas have been talking, but it's kind of a loose kind of confederation, not really there yet. Interesting. Geopolitics. How does it, how does it jive with the Bible? And that's what I'm trying to do here. So what happened was he speaks about the shadowing, a nation shadowing with buzzing or whirring. I went into the Hebrew. I went into some alternate translations. It's a really hard thing to completely translate, but Egypt was always a center of, it was an epicenter of that area. You know, even in ancient cultures, we talked about uh, Damascus, right? Syria, ancient culture. The Egyptians also had a very ancient culture. The pharaohs, the dynasties, all that kind of stuff. So along the Nile, um, it's very fertile. There's a lot of things that grow. There's also a lot of insects. Uh, it's, it's just teeming with insects, and it's this, this whole ecosystem type of thing. The other thing is that the diplomats were running back and forth. There was like a flurry of diplomats. Now, <laughs> we have to be careful when we don't take prophecy to its extremes, where it, it, it's, we make it say something it doesn't say. I actually have in my Bible, as a young believer, I was interested in prophecy, but I didn't know anything about the Bible. I'm looking at my notes, and uh, I wrote in red, United States, question mark. I since crossed that out <laughs> because I heard a teaching. There's a lot of false teachers out there that said, oh, this must be with the buzzing wings. It's the eagle. It's the United States. Man, that's really weak. That's really weak. And then the whole Ethiopia and the rivers and the nations and the reed boats, none of it makes sense. There's actually a cult going on as we speak that uh, the, the end of the world was going to be, there was a few dates in December. Um, the end of the world was also January 31st. And every time we're still here, we're still here, right, we're in February, they have another date. So how many times do these people have to make false predictions about the end of the world before you say, I've got to get out of this group. This is a cult. So when we look at prophecy, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. We have to do our research, but we can't make it say something that it doesn't say. Continuing on, to send the ambassadors by the sea. Now, 
if you look at, it's not easy to see here, but the Nile, right? The Nile is a very long river, and it actually flows because we look at the map, and we think up and down. That's not the way maps work. <laughs> we have to talk about the equator. We have to talk about water patterns. The Nile actually moves from what we understand, from the bottom of the screen to the top of the screen. So the reed boats, the ambassadors would come with these reed boats up the Nile around the coast of the Mediterranean and get right into Jerusalem. It would be a lot easier trip than kind of getting your, your camels and stuff and trying to bring them through the desert. So there's a lot of specifics in here. He says, to a nation tall and smooth of skin. If you look at, and I did a lot of research on this, if you look at ethnic uh, Ethiopian and Somali people, they're actually very, many of them are very tall, very muscular, right? And they have beautiful complexions. I look at this as a compliment. And they would get their warriors and, and their ambassadors to come to Judah and say, let's make an alliance. So we have this union over here in the northeast, but we need you too because enough of us have to get together to fight these Assyrians. God was saying, and he had a reason for it, don't make a, an alliance with them. And I'll tell you why. It actually helped everybody, by the way. And this is where when I write, don't get in God's way, what we'll find later is the fact that they didn't, or they did listen to God in this respect, helped not only the African people, but it helped Jerusalem. You're probably saying, wow, how's that going to come out of this? We'll talk about that. <laughs> um, actually, I was going through, I, I got so interested in African culture. Again, one of my rabbit holes. I, I learned so much about it. I just got up to speed on it. There was a site, a Somali site, where they, they actually asked the question, how come, all of our, how come a lot of our ancestors were ripped? And that was a compliment, meaning they were tall, they were incredibly muscular, they were, they were great warriors, and you see all the responses. And they have pictures, some old pictures. Um, as a matter of fact, if you look at the Y chromosome in DNA, there's a, a study that was done, Y chromosome DNA haplogroup, they found that, this is amazing, and this is I just found out this morning because I was still going into it. They found that the, on, the, on the paternal side, on the male side, the Y chromosome, that Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Somalia have very similar genetic traits, right? So even science is confirming this union that was made back then. It's fascinating. Very cool stuff. So we continue on. Verse 3. He says, All inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner, meaning the Lord, on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. When the Lord's ready to move, you'll know it. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest. See, the Lord doesn't fret like people do. And I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth, the birds of prey will summer on them, mean feast on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. So six out of seven is, is God made Judah deny the alliance with this northeastern regionalization because he was going to wipe out the Assyrians by himself. Don't get in God's way. If they would have made this alliance, I'm looking at three things here. Let's look at the three things. 
by not making the alliance, when Jerusalem is able to thwart the Assyrian attack, which happened, nobody could take credit. The Ethiopians couldn't take credit, and the, the ones in Jerusalem couldn't take credit. Nobody, only God. It was miraculous. You know, you see that with Gideon. <laughs> Gideon, he says, I'm gonna, you have to go against 135,000 Midianites, and he whittled down his 33,000-man army all the way down to 300. And Gideon's panicking. And God's like, listen, Gideon, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. I got it under control. You're going to win. But if you had any more men, you're going to think that you did it. Isn't it amazing? Like when we get something, how we get lifted up with pride. We get a promotion. Oh, I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. What about all the nights your, your family prayed for you for over the last few months? All of a sudden, we get stupid in our pride and we take the glory for it when God should get the glory. So two, again, when Jerusalem prevails, Ethiopia could see that the God of Israel was at work and that they would also forsake their false gods as the, uh, as this, as the uh, northern kingdom had to do and worship the true God. Third, third, if Judah and Ethiopia prevailed together, which they wouldn't have, the Ethiopians might have taken credit and lost a true blessing of coming to the true God, the monotheistic God. Um, we don't always see his plans, right? Now, when it talks about the sprigs and the sour grapes and all this kind of stuff, basically God is saying, I'm going to deal with the problem. And he likens the Assyrians to something that soured because they became so decadent. Now, verse 6, uh, and listen, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't always say things maybe the way would make us comfortable, but he did speak about the mountain birds of prey, and I've seen vultures and some of these big birds, <laughs> and it's amazing what they can carry. I mean, they'll, they'll go swoop right down on a road, and when you see a bunch of vultures or buzzards, man, something dead is very nearby, and I've seen them just pick stuff up, sometimes helping each other, and whoa. I mean, they're, they're talking about... Um, <laughs> there's always these stories in these areas about like watch your little dogs and your cats you know like a big bird of prey will just pick up a dog and fluffy oh there goes fluffy <laughs> fluffy's gone what are you going to do <laughs> shoot it down you're the fluffy's gone you know what i'm saying and i apologize if that's happened to any of you but you know these birds of prey they, they're carnivores and they come down and they that's what that's part of god's ecosystem fungus for vegetation right maggots for flesh, uh, carnivores for the big pieces. That's how God, termites, I forgot termites. Termites actually serve a purpose. Dead wood, wet wood. They, they, they bring it down into like uh, sawdust, uh, powder. You know, I've seen it happen. God's amazing. But anyway, so what was going to happen is the, the birds, like, naturally, they'd be like, wow, lunch. You know, <laughs> they saw what happened to the army and they all start, hey, hey, Fred, is he moving? I don't think so. <laughs> Well, let's go, you know. And they just went down. And um, you see also allusions to Revelation 14 and Revelation 19. God speaks about this great battle of Armageddon where the same thing happens. It's just carnage. You know, the Antichrist forces and, you know, he, he's so prideful and, and, the, and the Lord deals with him. So on a historical note, let's, let me tie this in together and then we'll wrap it up. In 671 B.C., so 701 happens. Right? As the numbers go down, we're getting closer to today. 701 BC, the, uh, the Assyrians are thwarted. They lose a good portion of their army. God does it directly. 
Now we move to 671 B.C. Another Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, rises up, and he decides, again, you can go in your history books, it's all there. He decides he wants to conquer Africa. And he does. But it's very short-lived, right? It's very short-lived. He goes in, and um, Egypt's 25th dynasty has to deal with him. He does manage to conquer them for a time. But what God does is he facilitates Egypt's 26th dynasty, the, the next dynasty, to repel the Assyrians and detach themselves from their control. Had God not done the thing in Jerusalem, the army would have been stronger and might have been remained there a longer time. So you can see God's hand in him weakening the military. And I just I enjoy battles and stuff. So um, Hitler's sixth army went into Russia when uh, the Russian general Zhukov and some of his other men did the pincer movement and crushed and divided the sixth army into two and then stopped the, the, uh, the Nazis' air bridge. They wiped out the sixth army, took 91,000 men to the gulags. Um, the writing was on the wall. Was there still fighting? Was the, were the allies still fighting the, the Nazis? Yeah, but the war was over. There was just some battles that had to be fought. So the handwriting was on the wall, whether it was Hitler's Sixth Army or the Assyrian, I don't know which army theirs was that got annihilated in Jerusalem, but you can see what happens. Now, let's look at some other influences since we're on the subject and since I had so much fun with it. What does the Bible say about Africa? Second Chronicles 9, the Queen of Sheba. Remember the Queen of Sheba? Queen of Sheba. Now, Sheba was an alliance and Ethiopia is very prominent. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of Christians in Ethiopia today. But Ethiopia and Yemen, or the lower part of the uh, Arabian Peninsula, they had a lot of back and forth. They had a lot of, and they, they united. The Queen of Sheba, maybe the word Abyssinia, might sound familiar to some of you. It was an Abyssinian dynasty. She comes up north to, see, to go to Jerusalem to see King Solomon because she hears about his incredible wisdom. Again, this is a fact. Um, in, in a lot of these places in Africa, they have monuments, they have um, writings, they have shrines to these events that actually took place. So, Second Chronicles 9, she goes up to see Solomon, uh, and she takes information about his amazing God back down to her people. Okay, Acts chapter 8, now we're moving forward in time. The angel of the Lord directly tells Philip, one of the disciples, to catch up with an unnamed eunuch of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, her court. So in other words, Candace is the queen. There's a lot of female queens back then. Very interesting. Um, so Candace, this is another, a more recent time period. She's in this area. And Philip goes to catch up with the eunuch. He's part of her court. And uh, the eunuch is actually reading a, the book of Isaiah. And he's saying, I need somebody to help me translate this. So Philip, of course, obliges him. He leads him to Christ, and the eunuch gets baptized. So you see a lot of this in the Bible. Now, because the first time, the first alliance was no good. God wants to do the work. But since then, he did everything he could to get the word of God to spread to Africa. And I know I have a, a few, a few uh, interesting demographics on Africa out of the 10 countries with the largest amount of Christians in the whole world, the whole world, 
What are the demographics? How many people, uh, population of Christians? Three of those countries are in, in Africa. Nigeria, Ethiopia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. I learned a lot in the last few days. <laughs> so another statistics is out of the 31 out of 54 African countries on the continent, uh, excuse me, out of the 54 countries on the continent, 31 countries in Africa, their populations make up over 55% are Christian. Did you know that? Somebody raise your hand. Tell me you knew that. All right, a few of you did. Very good. I, I, was, I was edified. Um, setting aside militant Islam, unfortunately, that's moved into some of these areas. We, we had at one point three African missionaries. Sometimes they come off the field, and they've spoken here a few times. Africa as a, as a whole is very open to more of the gospel. And it's amazing in such a tremendous landmass that Christianity has spread throughout the whole continent. So I, I find it fascinating. I felt I wanted to pass it on to you. And moving on, verse 7, <laughs> last one. It says, In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts. Well, that's interesting. From a people tall and smooth of skin, and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, a lot of tributaries in the Nile and other rivers there, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. So verse 7, or 7 out of 7, is the result was the blessing that that regionalization received in Africa because of what God did on his own without any interference. Um, some of these descriptors, and I, have to, I feel I need to address this, when it said uh, terrible, fearsome, you have to remember that in some nations, from little boys and, and some little girls, I think the Spartans trained little girls too, but they trained them at an early age to be warriors. Well, this did, didn't just happen in Ethiopia. The Spartans did it. The Scythians. Eight-year-old boy wouldn't be uncommon for him to be able to ride a horse and shoot a bow and arrow. They were fierce warriors, right? They defended their land. The Mongols, they, they really gave the Romans a hard time, right? The steppes people. I love studying this, you know, this, all these different peoples. Here's another one. Um, the British, over 100 years ago, they took heavy casualties fighting the Zulu which were, more correctly, the Bantu people of southern Africa. Um, the British had firearms, and the Zulu were not afraid. They had no guns, but they had spears. And they just kept coming and coming, and the British took heavy casualties. So they were fearsome warriors. But heck, if you invade somebody's land, of course they're going to, develop, they're going to protect their homeland. There's nothing, I don't think there's anything negative about that. But it does appear at the end of the day when this was all over that a, a gift was given from the Ethiopian region to Jerusalem. What does that mean? Most likely they would share, you know, probably they said, wow, your, your God really did protect you. Let, me, let us know more about this God. Just like um, Candace, just like, um, who was the other queen that I talked about? She, queen of Sheba, thank you. And what they probably did was they probably brought sacrifices to the temple and went through the, you know, and, and you can imagine the priest saying, well, this is what we do, and this is how we atone for their sins, and this is how God, we find favor with God, and it got spread to that area. Again, Ethiopia is one of the 
the 10 countries in the world with the largest Christian percentages. So God's word gets around. People ask a lot of questions. Well, what about this? What about remote areas? God's word gets around. At the end of the day, I love studying history, as you can tell. Sometimes my wife says, too much history for them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and she's right. I, I kind of go off on these historical excursions. But um, what about our current application? Let's bring this back to 2018. I live in New Jersey. Tell me what it means for me. Got it. How can we miss the fact that God, as, as believers, God wants to do something in our lives? And sometimes we get in the way, right? Judah kind of got, got, got in the way. They could have said, oh, our wall, our wall will save us. The Ethiopians could have said, our warriors will save us. Well, neither one was true. Joe DeProsimo says, something will save me when I get stupid in my pride. And you might say something different. And God's like, I'm trying to do something here. And you keep getting in the way. And it doesn't go well. You know, if they ran ahead of God in this situation and got in his way, it would have been disastrous and they would have missed the blessing. And conversely, when you and I get in God's way, and we know, you're a Christian, you know, you pray, you read the Bible, you, you, you have a sense in your spirit that God wants to do something. But, you know, it's, it's sometimes the fear of the unknown. God didn't write down like a proposal for me. So I can't follow it step by step. I have to walk by faith. I have to trust him. Abraham, go. Get out of your kindred, out of your people. Go to a land I'm going to show you. I'm sure Abraham had a million questions for God. Abraham, just go. Trust me. I'm going to take care of it. Right? Gideon, you're going to win. Oh, Lord, you whittled me down to 300. They have 130. Gideon, just go. You know what I'm saying? Joe, <laughs> Lord, what? Just, but yeah, but I, I, Joe, stop overthinking it. Just go. I'm going to take care of it. So that's the beauty in all this I see is that we don't want to miss the blessing. And, you know, let's just pray that we're actually listening to what he has to say and, and, you know, just trusting him in a lot of these situations and that we walk by faith and not by sight and not get in his way. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.